We are still studying 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Today we are on verse 7. Maybe we'll get more than one verse done today. You never know. One of these times we're going to do that. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, but before we open our Bibles to the passage and read it, I want to begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together with your beloved brothers and sisters that you gave us, that, that uh, we can gather together and pray for one another, open the Bible, uh, exhort one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, and together explore the glories of our mutual salvation. And again, we reach out to those who are listening from afar, who are hungry for the Word and perhaps don't have fellowship for, because of various reasons. We pray for them and we thank you for them and pray that they would also uh, participate and grow in, the, in grace and knowledge of their Savior, Jesus Christ. So we commit this Bible study to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. This morning, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. And let me read actually 7 through 9. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And as we get to those, those pairings of words, I'll, uh, unfortunately, it's almost impossible to translate from the Greek and get the same play on words that Paul is making. But some very bright scholars have made the be- their best effort, so I'll try to share that with you. Welcome back, Carl. <laughs> How was your Bible? Was good? Bible uh, collectors? Right. Yeah, Carl is the president of a, is it a national or international? International. International Bible collectors. So that's why Carl had to build a new house to store his Bibles. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, they didn't have the pocket verses back in 300 years ago, did they? (laughs) All right. Anyhow, nice to have Carl and Karen back. So this is a, a, last week we were looking at the, the light of the gospel shining into lives and changing, changing people. And uh, now he's talking about the treasure. Now, so what is the treasure? Well, in the context, it's the, the treasure is the light revealed by the gospel. It's this glorious truth of, of salvation in Christ, the, the joy of knowing God and having our sins forgiven and being um, unveiled. Remember the veiling? The veil was over our faces like it was over Moses's, all and so we couldn't see the glory. But through the gospel, God tears the veil, and the shining glory of God is shined into our lives so that we can see the truth that we were once uh, blinded to because of our own sin. As we said earlier, the, the the cause of the veiling isn't the gospel itself, which is clear enough. The the cause of the veiling is sin, and hardness of heart. Okay. So, then uh, there's something else that Paul doesn't want to veil the gospel. 
and that is any kind of offense or scandal that people might feel because of his own afflictions. He, the messenger, Paul, the messenger of the gospel, bringing this glorious truth to people, comes in a pretty tough condition. And later in 2 Corinthians, there's a couple places where he has a litany of all the sufferings he's been through. The shipwrecks and the beatings and the stonings and the destitution and all of the imprisonment, all of the things that Paul has been through. So one of Paul's concerns is that the fact that he is not very impressive and that the gospel hasn't, apparently hasn't made him all that healthy, wealthy, and successful would be an offense because the Corinthians were prone to uh, listening to these traveling uh, people called peddlers, the super apostles, who had a more uh, interesting message, and it came packaged better. Okay? And I think probably the best analogy in our day would be some, some of the TV preachers that seem so well packaged. Okay? And, um, and it looks so good. It sounds so good. It's so uh, inviting and philosophically pleasing. Well, that was what these super apostles were like that were uh, getting the attention of the Corinthians and getting them to think that Paul really didn't look like much and doubt his message because of the way he looked. So that's why he says we have the treasure, this light of the gospel, in earthen vessels. Now, the Greek word for earthen vessel would be for the cheapest sort of uh, clay pot that they had in the ancient world. In fact, this type of clay pot was so inexpensive that they didn't even bother to try to repair them. They just, you just throw them away. They were, they were, they'd get cracked and they'd shatter and go into shards and they were just pretty well worthless. In fact, there's a chapter in John MacArthur's book, um, Hard to Believe, that's titled after this, this here. He, what did he call it? A privy pot. Remember that? Yeah. So he, he had an interesting uh, chapter in his book where he's basically based on this passage right here. See, it's a, it doesn't look so good. Now, one of the questions is whether he's only just talking about his body, or and, and maybe he's making a, a body-soul dualism here, saying that the treasure is the soul and the, 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 the earth and vessel is the body. But that is not his point. I, I have an article coming out that was just written this last week that's going to take issue with that sort of understanding. All right? The sanctification is not anatomical. God sanctifies the whole person, body, soul, and spirit, as he says in Corinthians. And it's not that our spirits are perfected and our soul is stuck between the spirit and the body, and the body's the problem. Now, to show you that he's not doing that, the earth and vessel is the whole person. Because look at verse 8. The first part of, the, of the two, uh, these sets of two two and two. The first one is afflicted, which would make you think of his bodily sufferings. But look at the next pairing. Perplexed. That's something that happens inside. Okay? So Paul's suffering was affliction and, and being perplexed. So, both of the, so that, that's the whole person. The inner person and the outer person is suffering. And, uh, and so it's best, in my opinion... As far as I understand 
the whole counsel of God in the Old and New Testament, unless otherwise warranted, you should always take the person in a holistic way, because that's the Hebrew way of thinking. The, the, this this uh, parsing out the person into parts is sort of a Greek way of looking at things, or a Stoic way, but it wasn't a Hebrew way. It, would you agree, Ryan, that, that they saw the whole person? The whole person turns to God. The whole person is sanctified. The whole person is lost. Whatever is going on, it happens to you as a whole person. And so we can see, and I, one of the ways that I um, have tried to help people who have got caught up into other kind of teachings is to look in, if you look in uh, Galatians 5, the litany of the flesh, if you look at that, you can see things that, that, that are called flesh, sarks, that have to do with the body, that have to do with the mind, and that are spiritual. It talks about outbursts of anger. That's something that comes from the soul. It talks about sorcery. That's a spiritual activity. And it talks about other things that would be connected to the body. So the whole person is either saved, and the whole person is sanctified, or the whole person is lost and in darkness. That's how, that's how I understand it. So, the earthen vessel is something fragile, inferior, inferior, and it was, um, uh, there's sort of a, how would you say it here? There's an irony in Paul's statement. Uh, treasure in earthen vessels is an ironic statement. That's not something you would do. If you actually had a treasure, you wouldn't put it into a clay pot that's going to crack and fall apart and lose the contents you would get a much more secure uh, means of transport normally if you're going to carry a treasure around. You would not put it in a clay pot that cracks. So there's a certain um, uh, irony to this. And this is Paul's self-defense. It's his self-defense to those super apostles who have caught the attention of the Corinthians and made him look bad. And there's, we've seen quite a bit of self-defense already. Remember earlier he defended himself as to why he didn't show up, well, why he didn't make the trip that he was going to make. He, he wrote a letter, and, and he gives a fairly lengthy description. We, we studied that about why he didn't come, because that was one of the things that his critics said. Well, he didn't, he doesn't, he's not reliable. He doesn't show up. And Paul's response was, well, maybe, maybe it's true that I don't always show up when I said I was going to because of whatever reason, but I guarantee you my gospel's a lot reliable. <laughs> The promises of God through the gospel are yea and amen. They're invariable. They don't change. They're trustworthy. And that now, so he says, well, why don't you look better? Let's look at that passage to just jump ahead a little bit and see what his critics are saying. Second Corinthians 10. Let's just see what they say about Paul. Second Corinthians 10 and verse 10. He's quoting his... Reviewers, <laughs> okay, they say, quote, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible, unquote. Wow. <laughs> it's a good thing that was before the days of TV, right? <laughs> I don't think Paul would have been a TV evangelist. And... Um, What's Paul's answer to that? But he lives what he preaches. Let such a person consider this, that we are in word by letters when absent, such persons as we are indeed when present. In other words, he lives by what he preaches, and too. And we are not bold in the class or compare ourselves with some 
of those who commend themselves, for they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are without understanding. Paul is not really that concerned to be compared this preacher versus that preacher, which is what the Corinthians were prone to do. Remember 1 Corinthians? I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Paul won't get into any such um, silliness. Okay, so we have earthen vessels, and then there's a purpose clause. This purpose clause is repeated in verses 10 and 11. In the Greek, it's hina, which is normally translated in order that, but that's a word that indicates a purpose. So the, the purpose for having the treasure in earthen vessels is that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That's the purpose. Now, if you look at 10 and 11, notice, so that we, carry, we are carrying about in the body of the dying of Jesus, so that, Hina again, the life of Jesus may be manifest. And verse 11, we who, who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, Hina in the Greek, the life may be manifested in our flesh. So the purpose, uh, the, these three purpose clauses are all pointing to pretty much the same thing. The great power of God through the gospel, the life of Jesus Christ, that that would be the central thing and not just uh, some superstar mentality where the, the preacher is the message. Paul denied that. He denied that. We don't preach ourselves. Yes, Brian. As believers, we would agree that God's responsible for the broken vessels. He takes care of us. And then in, in, in strengthening the believer uh, uh, through faith, uh, it only glorifies God. So. Amen. God, when God uses us sinners saved by grace, he brings glory to his own name. Is that right? Look at, um, we had a little memorial service yesterday here for someone that passed away and I was teaching from the 23rd Psalm. And there's a phrase in the 23rd Psalm that really says that. Uh, let's see if I can remember the 23rd Psalm. You lead me in the paths of righteousness for thy name's sake. Now, what does that mean? Well, when God uh, calls a people out of the world to himself, even as in the Old Testament, Israel are the people of God. God is the shepherd of Israel. Thou art my shepherd. So God had invested his name in those people. We're seeing that in Exodus. They, they had his covenant name. And when God calls a people, he works in their lives to change them. That's what it means, leaves me on the path of righteousness. Why? For thy name's sake. So it bring glory and honor to God's name, which stands for his person and being. All right? So... Because of that, believers can be encouraged. If you know the Lord is your shepherd, then you know that God is committed to your holiness. And that should be a hopeful thing, because if we just thought of ourselves, we don't look like very good candidates for holiness. Right? Uh, James says we all stumble in many ways. (laughs) <laughs> Ryan, Dick and I were talking about your sermon. You're preaching on be angry and sin not. 
We, well, I, was t- I was telling Dick that you were going to preach on that, and I said, well, I'm pretty good at the first part, but the second part is a real battle. No, I was telling Dick, I just, I, I figured out how to fix my golf game. I went, I went to the driving range, did no good at all, so I went to Kmart, or Walmart, and I bought the cheapest balls they have, and so when I hit them in the lake, I won't be so sad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sometimes pragmatism has to rule the day. Well, anyhow, we were talking about being angry and sitting down. Well, the, the first part is easy. I don't know about the second. It'll be interesting to see how you're going to preach on that today. It is a tough passage. Anyhow, but the point is, that I was making is that we need to see that this is a hopeful thing. That, that if God has called us to himself as a people, he's committed to our holiness in order to bring glory to his own name. And God has at his disposal all the means that it's necessary, and they're revealed in the Bible, the means of grace, to make a people holy. And it's a progressive thing, and it's something that goes on throughout our lifetime, but God is committed to it. And so the earthen vessels is absolutely true. Uh, that's a great chapter in MacArthur's book, the Privy Pot chapter. Uh, right. I think you can look throughout the, the whole Bible and see that God has always used cracked pots, so to speak. You, know? you look at why he chose Israel. He flat out says, I did not choose you because you were the greatest or the grandest, but because you were the least among yeah. the nations. Yeah. And think of, say, Moses. You know, I'm a man. We've been studying in Exodus. He's always saying he's not good enough to do this, but this, God demonstrates his power through using someone like Moses. And and David, yeah, um, uh, shepherd. And yeah. then when our Lord comes, he he, he came as a, a carpenter. Unimpressive. Unimpressive. So the Lord has always uh, worked in this manner. So we can take heart in that, realizing that mm-hmm. we all are in the same boat, no matter where we're at in life. I, He's going to work with us. Amen. Amen. Well, actually, it says in First Corinthians that Paul, that God He says to think about consider your calling, brother. Not many rich, not many noble, not many wise. He chooses the things that are not. People have asked me, well, uh, if, God, if there is such a thing as election, on what basis does God choose? Well, it says according to it says Ephesians, according to the counsel of his will. But if we get any hit anywhere, he chooses the worst case scenario people. <laughs> so, yeah, the ones that are not. Yes. Yeah, just to add on to what he was just saying, I, I think one of the things that's been great for me just to learn in the last, you know, probably year was uh, I think there's a tendency as you grow in the Lord that you kind of feel like, okay, once I get to this specific point, then I'll be ready to be a better witness, to do all these different things. And I think the thing I realize more and more is that in the Bible, he always requires people to step forward in faith first, and then he starts equipping them, not the other way around. And... uh you know, I, I think it was like an Oswald Chambers thing I read, too, where it's like, you know, I'm not going to be this dynamic witness by just praying about it and not doing anything. I have to actually step forward so that he starts equipping me. So Yeah, it, there's a process, but our witness is something that's with us from the day we're converted. You could even look at Paul's own life. Remember, if you look in Acts 9, uh, as soon as he was converted, he was going out giving evidence and, and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. Now, we know he had the nine years and... And, you know, there was a process before his full apostolic ministry, but he immediately had a witness. Any new Christian has a witness about who Christ is and what he did for us. 
Okay, the surpassing greatness of the power. The power, what is, what, what is this power that, that we're talking about here? The power is God's saving power through the gospel. This pot shows that the power must be from God. What you have is a weak person with a powerful gospel. That's, that's encouraging. Isn't that encouraging? You might be a weak person, but you have a powerful gospel to share. So, um, let me hand out a few. Um, let's, I'm going to start over here with Lincoln. Could you look up Lamentations 4.2 and Carl 1 Corinthians 1.28 and Rick uh, 2 Corinthians 10.10 and Kat Galatians 4.13 and 14. Okay, the first passage was Lamentations 4.2. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of the potter's hands. So there's the earthen pots in the Old Testament. Absolutely. So it's amazing. The more you study, the more you find the Old Testament in the New and the illusions that are in there. Uh, the next one was uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty-eight. In the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are that's the passage I was alluding to. Absolutely. So the base things and the despised things God chose. And, and again, as Ryan said, that's exactly the way with Israel. God chose, well, what did he do? He chose a people that were actually only a person, Abraham. <laughs> and, and he became a wanderer and in, 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 in went to Egypt, left his land. And so there's just one man, and then a family, and then all these problems as we were preaching through Genesis. But God preserved his promise through the lineage, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then using Joseph. And he created a nation out of nothing. And this nation still exists, Israel. And it's a sign of God's existence, that they may know that I am the Lord. That's what it says in, in the plagues. I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring these people out so that all the nations will know I am the Lord, Yahweh. Okay, uh, Rick, the passage you have is um, 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. I may have already read that, but go ahead. For, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Good. I guess there's hope for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> that was Paul, then I guess we can do something. Galatians 4, 13 and 14. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Okay, so Paul preached in physical infirmity. Hmm. So he must not got that book, you know, um, <laughs> that they sell to tell you how to remedy that problem. Yeah, I preached, I preached on crutches, didn't I? Okay, I, I was going to quote from my um, favorite commentary in 2 Corinthians, uh, Mr. Garland. He says, um, 
a breakable vessel offers no protection for the treasure except for from dust and water. The image, therefore, serves to emphasize the contrast between Paul's own pitiful weakness and the great power of God. Uh, the image highlights Paul's lowliness. He does not depict himself as an object of art such as an exquisitely crafted Grecian urn or a bronze vessel or a delicate goblet with gold inlay. He has in mind earthenware jars or perhaps the small, cheap pottery lamps. Remember we had some of those for the, for the Passover, those little pottery lamps? Uh, neither were things of beauty. They lacked any outward luster in contrast to the treasure, and their cheapness would disguise the fact that they contained anything valuable at all. The contrast would emphasize the priceless value of the treasure compared to Paul's relative worthlessness. What the earthen vessel contains is the only thing that gives it importance. The image highlights Paul's expendability. Earthen vessels had no enduring value and were so cheap that when they were broken, no one attempted to mend them. They simply discarded them. Broken glass was melted down to make new glass. An earthen vessel, once hardened in a kiln, was non-recyclable. Easily broken, they were also easily replaced and not worth repairing. But the vessels essentially, later rabbinic tradition makes this comparison. Now here's a quote from one of the rabbis. Quote, just as wine cannot keep well in silver or gold vessels, but only in the lowliest of vessels, earthen ones, so words of Torah do not keep well in one who considers himself to be the same as silver or gold vessels, but only in one who considers himself the same as the lowliest vessels. So here in uh, some rabbinic commentary, we're expressing the same idea that Paul had, um, that the words of Torah were for earthen vessels, not Silver. That's interesting. There's, um, I love commentaries that are able to show us the Jewish background. Those are the best. And that's one of the things that the last 150 years has been a real blessing to the Christian church, is all the research into the Jewish background. Um, I have one more quote from, from Garland. Putting this treasure in unremarkable household articles keeps the pretensions and accomplishments of the gospel's ministers from obscuring the fact that the power does not belong to them. Paul confesses that no one looking at him would mistake him for something grand or be so taken by his grace and comeliness that they would miss the source of the power that was working in and through him to reconcile the world. In this way, he undercuts his showy, bombastic, and pretentious rivals whose manner was so different than his. So... As, as, as we can see as we're studying through Corinthians, there, there were some rivals to Paul that were quite different and had a totally different attitude, and they were the message. But in Paul's case, it's the light of the gospel of Christ that's the message. Now, in verse 8, it says, now here's where we have some interesting pairs of uh, contrasts here. Um, Afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, in the, in the Greek construction, what we have is <clears throat> a passive participle that describes a condition. And then uh, another passive participle that describes a more extreme condition. And the whole section is constructed the same way with passive participles. Um, 
How, how can you put that into literal English? You would say, for instance, in the first one, we are afflicted. In, 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 using the passive participle, would, we are being the afflicted ones. All right? That, that would be the Greek construction. Now, it's, it's interesting when you hear people talk about literal English Bibles and they don't realize that there really isn't one. If somebody actually, the closest thing would be an interlinear, all right? And if somebody actually literally translated every phrase, you would go nuts. You would never buy, you would, they wouldn't sell a Bible. How would you like to be, we are being the afflicted one, but we're not being the crushed ones? That's just not how we talk in English. We, the participles are everywhere in Greek, and that's just not how we talk in English. So give the Bible translators a break. They're helping you. <laughs> They're making life less painful. Um, now, the second set here is interesting. Perplexed but not despairing. Well, afflicted but not crushed. Again, something bad, but it could be worse. That perplexed but not despairing. The, the, it, let me just give you the Greek and then tell you what's going on with this. The first word is aporumenoi. And the second one is ek aporumenoi. So it's the same word with this ek uh, 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 prefix. Now, what that is doing is the ek prefix is creating an absolute situation. It's taking the same word and making absolute out of it. So, what, so it's so hard to translate into English, but some very creative people have, have come up um, with some, uh, some suggestions. So I want to share with you some su suggestions about getting the same idea into English. Uh, a guy, Barnett said this, at a loss, but not absolutely at a loss. Someone at Garland said, stressed, but not stressed out. <laughs> okay. And another fellow, Furnish, says, despairing, but not utterly desperate. <laughs> Since I think that gives you the idea. You know, the, the words sound the same, but it's, it's not absolutely as bad as it could be. Perplexed, but not absolutely giving up. And, um, and I think that that certainly should be encouraging to us, because uh, do you ever get stressed? Yes. Um, the thing, and I've had some very, very difficult times in my life where I felt like this so much so. And I think what Paul's saying is literally true. The thing that keeps you from totally giving up is that you know the Lord. You know, that you might lose all hope that this life is ever going to work out when everything that you try to do has gone to nothing. Every hope and dream that you had looks dim and hopeless. But when you get down to that utter, seemingly bad situation, you can't ultimately totally give up because you still know the Lord. And the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to die and go to heaven. <laughs> you know, another... Uh... Thinking of the uh, an implication of, of what you're talking about, you, I was thinking about going back to 1 Corinthians 10 when Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you, but as is common to man, and God is faithful, 
who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So a similar thing is being said there that we... Nothing is going to come our way which is going to be, be beyond what we can bear. And, he's, and uh, what's interesting in this text is it, it says not, it doesn't provide a way, but he provides the way, which is the gospel, which yeah. is Christ, who will always be with us. That's why we will never get to that point of utterly despairing. Amen. And the other part, my grace is sufficient for you? Yeah, Second Corinthians um, 12. Paul actually asked for a messenger of Satan to be removed, or an angel of Satan, depending on how you translate it. And Paul, and, and God's answer was, no, my grace is sufficient. So, so the, whatever was afflicting Paul so badly, he had actually asked for it to be taken away, and God said no. And he, and he, in his affliction, was experiencing God's grace in a way that was necessary. And the reason Paul, Paul even knew why it was necessary, because of the visions that he'd been given, that he did not ex- begin to exalt himself. And he said, my power is made perfect in weakness. Yeah, my power is made perfect in weakness. So the way of escape is through our faith in the gospel, is that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Uh, we may boldly say, I will, shall not fear, what will man do unto me? I'm living proof. I'm still going through problems. I have all my life. Through accidents mm-hmm. and, and repairs and whatnot. And I'm still here. And you're still trusting the Lord? Right. Amen. Amen. Uh, okay, stressed but not stressed out. Despairing but not des- utterly desperate. Not absolutely anything. Uh, okay, um, Dale, if you could look up 2 Corinthians 1. Oh, did I forget to... Were you supposed to read Galatians and I forgot? No. I did. You, did you read them? Mm-hmm. All right. Was I here? <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> Zoned out. No, Galatians. Okay, now I remember that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> All right. 2 Corinthians 1, 5 and 6, and then Michelle, Psalm 56, 2 and 3, and Robert, Proverbs 18, 10, and Gretchen, Romans 5. Three through five. What's your name? Chad. Chad. Yep. Yeah, you told me that. Yep. James one, two through four. Yep. <laughs> okay, when you get there, two Corinthians one, five, and six. For just as the suffering of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Okay, so Paul's affliction as the church saw him finding comfort and hope in the midst of it was designed to give them comfort because they also go through afflictions. Okay, so if God's great apostle can be suffering, so can we. Psalm 56, 2 and 3. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Okay. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. The, the lament psalms are certainly um, a, a good study for any Christian. 
how these people in the Old Testament responded to their difficulties and their trials and their persecutions. And they, they weren't afraid to complain to God, sometimes quite bitterly. But in the end, almost, in fact, I think without exception, somewhere in the Lament Psalm there is, but I put my trust in God or something like that. There's always a, a, a word of hope in the midst of the difficulty. Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. You know, that's a good uh, verse to show what they mean by the, the name. In other words, it's so connected to the person that it stands for the person, right? So where you, you actually are running to the Lord, not, but, but running to the name of the Lord doesn't seem to run as to run to the Lord himself because he has revealed himself in his nature in his name. Okay, so that's, that's what, uh, that shows that. So the righteous run to the Lord and they're safe. The name of the Lord. Okay, Gretchen. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Amen. (laughs) Yes. That's great, isn't it? He's poured out his Holy Spirit, and, and we have hope. Um, this, you know, all of these passages that we're reading are true for all Christians. I have an article that Dick has in his hands now to, to edit that we're going to publish next month. And I'm arguing, actually the article is about pietism and why I'm against it. And what I argue is that any type of doctrine that divides the church into the haves and have-nots or into categories with some people in elite category and the others in the lesser category, I believe is a false doctrine. Okay? And that the body of Christ is one. And that we're all in the same boat. <laughs> we're all sinners saved by grace. We're all needing sanctification. And yes, there's a continuum. Some have, are, are you know, there's, there's gifts and distinctions and what have you. But even in those passages where Paul talks about distinctions, he's careful to make sure that there's no division and that there's no kind of a category thing going on with the haves and have-nots. For for example, look at 1 Corinthians 12. So we're reading these passages. They're they're all true for all Christians. There's nobody that learned a secret that makes them a better Christian. There's no such thing. And the, the amazing thing is that the most popular literature in, in, in Christian, in America, the most popular Christian literature that's been written in the last 200 years is almost always by pietists who claim to have the secret of some better way to be a Christian. This Hannah Whitehall Smith, the Christian secret of a happy life. Pietist. There's no secret. If it's a secret, then you, she doesn't know it. Okay. There's no secret. It's only what's revealed. If it is a secret, then you can't write a book about it. Keep it to yourself. We don't want your secret. <laughs> don't ever put that in your title. 
1 Corinthians 12. Look at, here's, now, here's why I'm against that sort of thing. Maybe it's well-meaning. It's going to show people how to have a better prayer life or how to be more sanctified or how to be more happy or how, whatever. Maybe it's intended for good purposes, but that kind of pietistic literature always creates this idea that there's some elite kind of Christian and the rest of us, we just don't get it. And I don't think we should ever divide the body into anything. Just in a moment, Roger's going to want to say something in a second. Now look at the, now when he talks about differences in 1 Corinthians 12, varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Notice there's always something that's unifying. Varieties of ministries, the same Lord. Varieties of effect, but the same God who works. And then he goes on to the list of these gifts of the spirit. But then, um, but look at verse 14, that he, he doesn't want us to ever consider that if someone has some what, superlative spiritual gift, that somehow they're in a different class or different category. They're not. Because it says in verse 14, For the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not the hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were the eye, where would the hearing be? Now look at verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. Now look at verse 22. But on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, notice this word, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. Okay? Um, And... Verse 23, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor in our unseemly members to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacks, that there be no division in the body. So I cannot see how anybody reading that would get the idea that there's some sort of a two-tiered Christianity with some people in an elite category and the rest of us just sort of fumbling around because we don't know anything. It's just, you just can't do that. You know, uh, and I give in my article a whole litany of, what, of some of the different approaches that have existed, and I tried most of them. And, and you know, uh, the other thing that I noticed to be true after all these years of hearing various versions of elitist Christianity I've never heard a preacher get up and say, there's certain Christians who are the most profound, the most holy. They have the secret. They know how to get their prayers answered. They've got everything going for them. But unfortunately, I'm not one of them. (laughs) Now, if I heard that, that might actually be believable. Because I'm quite sure I'm not one of them. (laughs) But no, they always say that because they are the ones that are in that category. Yes. I have an example of one of those guys. One... About three churches back, there were four or five of us guys who all left, eventually left the church. But one of them was calling the elder hotline and really giving them an earful. So they invited him to an elders' meeting to settle their differences. And he said, I'm not going alone, so all five of us went. And during the course of this meeting, one of the elders, trying to illustrate his advanced condition, said, look, if my mother has a nine-button adding machine, and I have an electronic calculator. Do I have to wait for her? Wow. So he had this advanced thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's never the answer. When people have needs or questions in the body of Christ, the answer is never, I'm the elder, why should I listen to you? That is not the answer. Uh-uh. Never. 
we need the, everybody. You know what's interesting is this, this, this isn't recent. This goes back to the beginning of the church. Yes. Because um, I remember when I was an undergrad and I started to study Gnosticism. And what a lot of the stuff you're talking about right now is, is Gnosticism and, and the early forms of it Paul had to battle. For instance, in, in Colossians. In Colossians. Yeah, yeah. They were purporting to have this, the stoichia, that you, the secrets that you needed to go find to get out of your, uh, your ordinary state. Yes. And Paul's answer is, no, we're all, we have our sufficiency in the supremacy of Christ. Yes. In Christ alone. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I talk about that in my article. I talk about Colossians. And in the, uh, immediately in church history, it developed a lot of versions of it as Gnosticism tried to come into church. But then one of the first examples was the Desert Fathers. The people living in the city were corrupted Christians because they had houses and wealth, and therefore they were suspect and prone to temptation. So we'll go out into the desert, away from all other Christians, so we can be holy. Now, there's certain, there's, there's certain things you're not going to be able to do that the Bible tells you to do when you're out in the desert by yourself. Like, love one another. <laughs> you got a problem. There's no one another anywhere around. <laughs> And then, and then the, the irony, well, when they went out in there, and, and Brian, you've talked about this, when they, they went out in there, they started becoming mystics, you know, and, and getting in these altered states. And one of them was tormented by demons out there, so he didn't get away from Satan after all. So this, there's something that in us that it gives us a propensity to seek some sort of a higher order Christianity. And the most liberating thing that ever happened to me was when I finally realized that the best thing I could hope for was to be a sinner saved by grace. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> That's, and, then, and when you start thinking that way, then the cross becomes so meaningful. Then you start thinking, oh, what a privilege to be a part of the family of God. Yes. Uh, Jesus Christ rebuked the disciples when they were arguing exactly about this, when they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. So he started rebuking them from day one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then, then, then the interesting thing is that you can even take... People take Jesus' teaching where they rebuke them for wanting to be the greatest. And so then in the Middle Ages, they turned that thing on their head and they proved how great they were by how miserable they could make themselves. Okay? So I'm going to be greater than you because I'm going to get whipped and flagellated and <laughs> hung by chains. And I mean, any way to be better, whether it's a negative or a positive one, is the same spirit. Yes. Well, I wonder how do you, you know, comfort one another or listen to one another, or share the gospel when you've taken a vow of silence. Yeah, you can't. No. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm, I'm excited about this article, and uh, Dick's read it, and he hasn't vetoed it, so it will come out. No veto. Good. <laughs> so, afflicted. And now, but the reason I'm bringing this up, because it's exactly what Paul was dealing with. The elitists had come into Corinth and convinced the church that Paul wasn't in their category. Why will you listen to him? Look at him. Look at us. We're articulate. We're, we're philosophers. We can, we're handsome. We're rich. And look at Paul. Beat up, miserable, can't, contemptible speech. He can't even give a good homily. He, he's such a bad preacher, this guy fell off of a windowsill when he was preaching. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, that's why, by the way, you didn't know. That's why we got padded chairs up there. I don't want anybody to get injured when I'm preaching. With it. 
when they fall over. <laughs> as a safety device. <laughs> All right. Um, let's go to the next little section here. Oh, somebody. Oh, you had a verb. We didn't finish. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Chad, you're very, you're very uh, patient. James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. All right, so we're supposed to count it joy when we fall into trials, because trials teach us patience. Maybe that's why I'm a golfer. I'm supposed to learn patience. I don't know if it's working. I don't think it's working. <laughs> not so good lately. Verse 9. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. So the word forsaken here is used in the Septuagint uh, for God's promise not to forsake his people. That's found in Deuteronomy 31.6. Uh, Joanne, could you look up Deuteronomy 31.6? The same word, by the way, is used by Jesus in Mark 15, 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's also found in Psalm 22, 1, which Jesus was citing on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the, the difficulty is that God promised not to forsake his people. But when Jesus was bearing God's wrath against our sin, he experienced... The, the, all of the anguish of God forsaking because of sin. Okay, um, Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. The Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. So God goes with you. Be courageous because God's with you and he won't forsake you. And there's something like that found in Hebrews 13, so when it tells us not to fear man. I will not fear what shall man do unto me. Why? Because God says I, he won't forsake. Is that right? That's how you overcome the fear of man. Um, so persecuted but not forsaken, struck down. Uh, uh, I have another uh, one of these scholars who try to bring this into Eng English, the, the word play that's going on in Greek. I like this one. He says, knocked down but not knocked out. <laughs> okay. Knocked down but not knocked out. You'll get up to fight another day. <laughs> so they're not forsaken by God. Let me, uh, okay, Dick, uh, Psalm 42.5 in Alice, 2 Corinthians 6.4, Troy, 2 Corinthians 12.10, and... Uh, uh, Ryan, 1 Peter 4, 12-14, and Larry, Hebrews 13, 5. I already cited that one, but you can read it anyhow. All set? Yes. Psalm 42, 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? 42, 5. Okay. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So it's scriptural to talk to yourself? <laughs> That's what's going on. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? 
Trusting God. So the psalmist is telling himself to quit despairing and start trusting God. Okay. Second Corinthians 6, 4. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distress, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness. Did I go past where I needed to go? Well, the idea Sorry. is that he has a litany of his sufferings yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, all, it's all good or all bad, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Troy. Second Corinthians 12.10. Therefore, I am well content with the weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. First Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Amen. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Okay, be content because he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So it's a great promise, and that's a citation, by the way, from the Old Testament. Um, Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6. And a couple minutes here, let me do a little scholarly citation. Um, Christ from Garland, Christ crucified is not only his message, but it is also his model. He has become the suffering apostle of the suffering Messiah. We can learn from his example. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> we can learn from his example that ministers do not have to ha- to be wonderful, just faithful. God. <laughs> There's hope. <laughs> um, many labor under the enormous burden of trying to be wonderful in the eyes of others, rather than. Simply trying to minister to them. Wow. Many a minister suffers burnout from trying to run a sparkling program, keeping up attendance while keeping down conflict, and preaching catchy sermons instead of preaching Christ. Wow. And this is from a scholarly commentary. It's interesting. Paul knew knew suffering beyond the imagination of many, but endured because... He also knew the power of the resurrection. Most persons of average piety would be broken by such adversity. But yet piety does not rally him. It is the power of God at work in him. He's not trusting in his piety. <laughs> wow. Uh, Garland makes a good point. And I interviewed uh, Reverend George Cable uh, one time when I was filling in for Joyce Harley when she had a radio show on KKMS. Uh, I, the first time I did it, I didn't realize you needed to get a guest, so I filled in. I sat there and talked for an hour. <laughs> and that was not good. So I didn't do that again. i got to get somebody to talk to. I, I sat on the, I'm sitting on the radio talking about atheism for a whole hour, and what's wrong with it? Nobody called, and so here I sat. So the next time, I thought, okay, I'm not doing this again. So I brought in George Cable, 
a pastor friend of mine who's in his late 70s, a faithful brother. He's now pastoring out north in the, uh, Sunrise Bible Church. He had retired, and then he had bypass surgery because he didn't know why he was so tired. Well, he had these clogged arteries in his heart. He, as soon as he felt good, he's right back in the pulpit. So I, I interviewed uh, Brother Cable to ask him about what it was like when he began the ministry in the 19, about 1950, and he planted churches in Wisconsin. And, and it just kind of how his life as a pastor had progressed. And he told me a story on the air that I hadn't heard from him before about how he got caught up in this sort of thing that Garland was talking about. In the, in the 70s, they had this, there was some guy in Illinois that had like 2,000 people or kids coming to his church on buses. Remember the bus ministry thing? And so, so because he was successful, everybody had to do the same thing. So you had to get all these, buy these old school buses, which were always breaking down. And get all your volunteers to fix them, drive them, go get the kids, and bring them into church. And, and, and so uh, Cable got caught up in that. He, he told me the story. And he, said, and, we, and he said, we had all of these buses. And he said, I was just burning out everybody in the church that was willing to volunteer. And, and he said, it was so trying to grow, trying to get more people, trying to do all these buses. And he said, I ended up in the hospital, flat on my back, in the hospital, looking at the ceiling, thinking I was going to have a heart attack or something. And uh, this was when he was just middle-aged or younger. And he says, he looked, he looked up at the ceiling, <laughs> kind of talked to himself, and says, Cable, what are you doing? I'm killing myself. He said, I don't have to do this. And so he just said no to this whole thing. I'm, not, I don't, I'm just going to pre- be faithful. I'm just going to preach the gospel. I'm not going to do the latest thing to grow the church. And he went on to have a very productive and blessed ministry that he still has. So he told me that story. And, and I know for a fact that when you start thinking that you're trying to be successful and you want people to like you and you want to have some sort of accolades or be known as a whatever, it's just, you, you just you're, you're going to pound your head against the wall and you're going to be frustrated and you're not really being faithful anyhow. But when you finally get it in your mind... No matter the only thing, remember I told you how that happened for me with um, John MacArthur's message in '98, because I, I I was just dying, literally I was dying because I had been given the reins of being the senior pastor in a church and it was shrinking under my guard, under my watch, and and it was killing me, and I couldn't, there wasn't a thing I could do to fix it, and then when I heard MacArthur preach that sermon that I shared with you here in the Sunday school class about the greatest privilege and honor that God has ever given to anyone is the honor of preaching the gospel. And that that is worth everything. That was the end of, sort of like Cables had his moment in the hospital bed, that was my moment. So, okay, I'm done with it. I'm going to preach the gospel, and if it turns out to be five people or ten or twenty, that's God's business. But I know I have to make sure it's the gospel. And so I have to say amen to what Garland said. And if you're young and considering going into the ministry, learn it the first time. Don't wait until you're 35 or 40 or 45 or whatever. It's, it's not worth it. Just be faithful, care for God's flock, and, and the Lord will do what he's going to do. It might be a small group or a big one. That's not our business. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, next week we'll go on to the next verse. Help with the chairs. We'll see you upstairs. Ryan's preaching today.